Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host, health policy professional, based in California. I'm Brendan Style, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the styling, quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, October 17th, 2021. One show was missing today, missing in action. (laughs) Yeah, it was an interesting experience for us because there are multiple ways we try to watch the show, get the audio from the show, and we just couldn't find it anywhere. And we thought, we're going to have to tell people, sorry, we just, it, it was inaccessible to us. And then we were trying and nothing. And then we checked Twitter and we were like, oh, it was preempted. Yes. So Face the Nation <laughs> did not air today. So we are just looking at the other four. Yeah, you're not missing anything. We didn't miss anything because it didn't happen. <laughs> to be clear, Brendan wants it known to all that we tried very hard and it's Face the Nation's fault that they're not part of today's discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, what'd you look at today? I looked at State of the Union and Meet the Press, two that I haven't watched together in a long time. So there's going to be quite a bit of compare and contrast going on this episode. Interesting. I looked at this week, which was hosted by Martha Raddatz. Also, John Carl was on the pa- on the panel. So, Oh, interesting. Very communal. And they could have George on there, too. And they, <laughs> they don't need any other panelists. Well, there was an interview that George... It was this Carl Steele from the Steele dossier. He... Oh, oh yes, yes. George, yes. there was like previews of George's interview with him. So all three of them in some capacity on the show. A but, team effort. <laughs> Everybody wants a piece of this week. And then I also looked at Fox News Sunday, which was hosted, of course, by Chris Wallace. Awesome. Well, let's get into quality questionable, Naomi. Do you have a quality or a questionable? I'm feeling very Brendan-esque in my quality questionable because (laughs) It's 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 a quality observation of something that is questionable. You're making the quality observation? No, the observation itself was quality. I know, I know. So there was... Two on this theme about how Americans have no idea what's in the build better, what build better, build back better. See, you don't build even know back how to say it. Better <laughs> proposal, and I thought they were they just summarized a lot. So the first clip is from Kristen Soltis Anderson. She's a Republican pollster, and she was on Fox News Sunday. Let's focus on the president's domestic agenda. On Friday, he talked about not the infrastructure part, but the big tax and spend social spending part. Uh, Here's what he had to say. Take a look. It's not going to be $3.5 trillion. So the question is, how much of what is important do we get into the legislation. I'm of the view that it's important to establish the principle on a whole range of issues without guaranteeing you get the whole 10 years. 
Kristen, is the president right in a political sense, in a polling sense? Does it make more sense to do more things for a shorter period of time rather than what some Democrats are saying, which is cut, cull the program and do more, fewer things, but for a longer period of time? I will tell you that the vast majority of voters do not even know that this debate is happening in Washington, Chris. Uh, that right now, if people know that this bill is happening, they know that that number, $3.5 trillion, is what is being discussed. And only about a quarter in the polls that I saw come out this week think that this bill will make them better off. The problem that Democrats have is that individually, things like child care, things like paid leave, many of the things that are being talked about as being part of this bill are individually relatively popular. But they've all been thrown in together into this big, massive, gargantuan bill that most people don't think is going to benefit them directly. And so as a result, the, the political upside of doing one versus another, I think the difference is negligible. I think Democrats have backed themselves into a problem here where individually something like infrastructure is very popular, et cetera, et cetera. But requiring it all to be tied together has created an absolute political mush that is not giving them any of the benefits. So I thought this was... <laughs> amusing and appropriate because you know chris wallace really tries to have like you know a very serious question here of like what what is the better thing to do here you know fund things short for a shorter period of time or you know really scale back their their investments anderson kristen assaulted anderson kind of cuts through all that it's like listen nobody knows this is happening and if they do any know if they do know anything about it it's expensive right and, and it's just a mush. I think she says it's a mush. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't include it, but Chris Wallace's reply was <laughs> something that was to the effect of, I was like, and you know, we don't like mush around here <laughs> 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 or something like that. It, it is an interesting question for Chris Wallace to ask. And my personal feeling is probably more things funded for less time is easier to sell than fewer things funded for more than 10 years. Because if you're worried about paid family leave, if you get it now, you don't care if there's a debate about funding five years from now, right? Like you've already taken care of that. You've already been helped by it. And, you know, as others have said, you lay the foundation for something and then it's hard to take it away from people. As we learned with the Bush tax cuts, you know, time and time again, they seemed like they were going to be temporary, but nobody wanted to be branded as the team that took away this benefit that everyone had gotten used to before. Right. I mean, the other part to that is programs that don't have long-term investment are often not implemented well. They just kind of don't have the startup funds to, to do it well. Yeah. The other thing that came to mind in listening to this answer is a fact that should be obvious and others probably think it's obvious, but it's not being made a lot this point. And that is that there's a reason why there's this mush. It's because Democrats have enough votes to pass things, but because of the Senate filibuster, they only are able to pass things through this ridiculous reconciliation process where they do have to cram everything into a giant bill. Right. If they just had the ability to pass things with a simple majority, which the Democrats could simply do with a majority to say this is the way we're going to do things, but they won't do that. If they had the opportunity to do that, you could have, well, this is the paid family leave bill. And that's all it is. And look, we're going to talk about it. We're going to debate it. We're going to pass it. And now this is the child care bill. We're going to talk about it. We're going to debate it. For a few weeks, we're going to pass it. And they could really just do everything piecemeal. And it would be much easier to message. 
and it might be easier to get people on board with these issues that are popular. But now they have to like, you know, it's everything or nothing with right. these giant bills. The, the general infrastructure of the Senate, the the parameters, the rules of the Senate force the Democrats to do it in this way. There was one other moment where I thought there was some apt analysis of recent polling. And this was on This Week. And it's a comment from Rick Klein, the ABC News political director. I, I was stunned by the CNN poll. Let me read it. Only a quarter of Americans think their lives will be better off if both the infrastructure and social spending bills pass. More than four in 10 said they wouldn't make a difference. And about a third said they'd be worse off. It, it really does seem like whatever they're doing on the Hill, the Democrats aren't selling it to the American A people. massive failure to communicate what's in the bill, in part because they don't actually know what's in the bill. Well, how can you <laughs> yeah. sell this? But think about that. They are talking about the largest expansion in, in social service uh, spending in, in American history, and only one-fourth of people think it's actually better for them. This, to me, has real shades of the health care debate from more than a decade ago. I've talked to a number of Democrats who've made the point that they failed throughout that to communicate what the stakes were. They got bogged down in the process. And by the time they got over the finish line, it was defined politically. And the idea that even if you pass this now, that you can then go out and make the case that this works for people, they're betting so many of their midterm hopes on that and recovery from COVID, things that ultimately may be out of their control because perceptions have gotten away from them. This is a, this is a big problem that Democrats are worried about, that even if they get it done, they're not going to be able to, to make much of it. So both of these comments has me thinking that this is a multifaceted problem and opportunity. First, you know, I do think Rick Klein here is right that Democrats have not been strategic enough in their communication strategies regarding the Build Back Better plan. And at the same time, I think there's a responsibility on media organizations to focus literally 20% of their time or whatever beyond the price tag and having more robust yes. conversations. We've mentioned this time and time again with thought leaders, experts in these various fields, childcare, a green economy, infrastructure, whatever you want to do to help understand what the impact would be. Stop calling Joe Manchin and talk to someone who knows these issues. Yeah, you know, it's... I have some questions for Rick Klein and everyone who's like scratching their heads over what the Democrats are doing here. Clearly, it would be a different story if the Democrats did all this negotiating on their own and behind closed doors before they even introduced it to the public and said, look, here's the plan. We're going to step into the Senate and pass it. And then we're going to move to the House and we're going to have a few debates on the floor for a few weeks or a week. And then we're going to pass it. But that's not how this has gone. And the question I have for people like Rick Klein and all these journalists who are scratching their heads, these commentators, is what do you prefer? Do you prefer that the political debate happens in view of the public, that the public has a chance to see and maybe weigh in on that debate? Or would you prefer if all of that really was behind closed doors, if all the decisions were made in smoke-filled rooms and then people just got up, voted on it and sold it, and that was it? Like, we have an open process, you know? This is the way things work, you know? And it, you don't have to go very far to find people talking about the making of bills being like making sausages. Like, it is a process that ideally the public does have some insight into what's going on. And, and influence. And influence, exactly. So I guess I would just say to people, yeah, this might not be ideal if you're on one side or the other and you just want to see it get done. It might look messy. 
but it's at least an open process. And I would think that the media, at the very least, would want an open process. They'd want to see what's going on and be able to cover it instead of literally not be able to cover it. I mean, I do think Democrats are not being very smart here and the process can outweigh the actual substance in coverage. But I hear what you're saying in terms of transparency is not always so clean. Exactly. Brendan, do you have a quality or questionable for today? Yeah, I have a quality moment. And that is, this is a lot of panel discussion, the panels on Meet the Press. I thought the panels were really insightful and interesting. And actually, I'm just going to zoom right into this because the first clip is from Amy Walter, editor-in-chief and publisher of the Cook Political Report. And she's talking about some of the frustrations out there over the Democrats maybe not being able to get this infrastructure work done. See, I think the challenge really goes back more to what Garrett is saying, is that I don't know that Democratic voters are particularly excited about Build Back Better or an infrastructure bill. Don't you see I all the individual they were... polling that they <laughs> tell you this? I'm sorry, I, I just might make me I know nuts. it. Just I because know. something polls well doesn't, doesn't mean, mean it's that it's salient. It's not right. salient. Yes. What is salient, and I've been sitting in these focus groups, especially with younger African-American voters, you know what they're talking about? Exactly what Garrett said, which is, where is where's the police reform? Where, we, we talked about that a lot in 2020. Mm-hmm. Voting rights, this is an existential threat to our country and what, we can't pass it? You're in charge, Democrats. It's you, you have a chance to do this. And so I think they're sort of missing out on the things that do really energize Democrats in the one, on the one hand. So I thought this was a very interesting point and an important observation about the difference between what polls well and what is actually salient in people's minds, what people are really concerned about. And, you know, a little bit we could say, well, it's salient because it's in a lot of the news media and people are talking about it a lot. But someone not able to get childcare is probably salient in their minds. They don't maybe think of that as a political issue, but it's still an issue in their minds and something they're facing. Similar with a lot of these other social issues that are in the Build Back Better agenda. But This is an important point, and when people do polling about what the top issue is going into this election versus that election, salience really matters in that that space. It is an interesting contrast to the healthcare debate because healthcare has been salient for a very long time, still is salient, and was hugely salient back in the healthcare debate. So when everything was being quote-unquote fumbled by Democrats as they were debating health care for, it felt like, a year during the Obama administration. It was a year. Yeah. At least it was a salient issue, and everyone knew that they cared about health care, and that was what the focus was, and voters cared about it. So this is an interesting situation here where the bill is a mush, and it might be full of things that are individually salient to individual people and voters, but is not politically feeling salient beyond the number 3.5 trillion. I mean, I think Amy Walter also brings up a level of like voters are freaking disappointed in the lack of progress and things that were supposedly for sure things we can do like police reform after historical reckoning and activists and uprising in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. Right. And it just seems so likely that something would happen and nothing the general acceptance of voting rights just being stripped in states across like across the south like state after state after state and you know hearing 
news reports that Biden and other Democratic leaders say that, you know, Democrats just need to out-organize these these repressive strategies. Like, it's just... Yeah, there's things that seem so basic, like, of course, these should be priorities for Democrats and nothing's happening. And so to then expect those same Democrats, those same voters to be equally activated in this fight, of course, they're losing people. Right. And of course, they're going to be kind of going against momentum to trying to not just bring back their support, but their enthusiasm in the midterms. Yep, absolutely. Well, Why don't we continue on to our main topics? I am talking a lot about the economy. Brendan, what are you talking about? I am talking, this is really a focus on the hosts places. So it's not really a focus on topic. It's a focus on these hosts. So why don't you go first, Naomi? We'll stay topical. So I am talking about the economy because there was a lot of focus on that on the two shows that I looked at. And I thought they both did a good job in different ways. And I think there's still a lot to be covered and is missing in the recent analysis and conversations about the state of the economy. So you've probably heard, or if you saw the Sunday news shows, there's a lot of concern around supply chain. There is a horrendous lag depending on what types of products you are looking for furniture is like months of delays people are freaking out the toys might not get here at christmas and just an overall huge backlog that coupled with inflation concerns by republicans you know comments from secretary yellen that this is a transitory inflation moment there's just a lot of aspects around the economy that are just kind of very interesting news topics and is very different than what we've been talking about the last few months. So it's it's very interesting seeing how the different shows take it. Martha Raddatz, of course, went on the scene to look for, you know, look at this herself. <laughs> of course. Of course. So she was in Long Beach, California. She's which like, is, I don't believe it unless I see it. <laughs> it's not real unless I see it. So she went out to Long Beach, which is, you know, in L.A. County and is one of the largest ports. I think it's the largest port in the United States. Forty percent of all products from China come in through Long Beach and, you know, kind of made this really interesting observation putting in context about how much product is kind of in a standstill. And in this clip, there will also be a quote by Noel Hasegawa. He is the Port of Long Beach Deputy Executive Director. We traveled to the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, where 40% of all cargo goods enter the U.S. to see for ourselves. Here off the coast of Southern California, on the waters of the country's busiest ports, record numbers of container ships sitting idle. Right now in the port of Long Beach, there are more than 60 container ships anchored here waiting to unload. Normally, there wouldn't be any of them waiting. And those are just the ones you can see way out in the Pacific. There are dozens more. On board these ships, that couch you order, computers, refrigerators, medical supplies, and toys hoping to reach Santa in time for Christmas. Martha, I have never seen anything like this. This is actually one of the smaller ships. The largest ships in service today can carry up to 24,000 container units. And what would that mean in terms of goods? That could fill three shopping malls. So I just love that simple kind of (laughs) thinking of the average consumer, the average watcher 
to try to put in context how much product is just sitting on these ships trying to get processed at the port. You know, one ship being able to fill three shopping malls and is just waiting for weeks trying to get processed. Yeah, malls are having a hard enough time. (laughs) Oh, that's so true and sad. (laughs) As our mall is like, I think early versions of bankruptcy or i don't know it's like all malls i know all malls are dying which is ridiculous in a hot place like we live like come on (laughs) but there was an another interview and this was on fox news sunday and i'm going to be referring to it extensively because i thought it was excellent it was with muhammad el arian he led PIMCO for years. PIMCO is the Pacific Investment Management Company, a global investment management firm. Now he's the chief economic advisor to Allianz, which is a German multinational financial services company. He used to be chair of President Obama's Global Development Council. He's a columnist for Bloomberg View. He contributes to the Financial Times. He's like one of the people when you're talking about the world economy, right? He goes to Davos every year, I'm oh, sure. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but anyway, Chris Wallace talks to this economist, and it is such a great example of good questions and strong answers explained by both in very kind of layman terms, and is just great explainer journalism, to be frank. And so I'm going to be looking at this interview a lot for the different kind of parts of the economy that were discussed. Take a listen to this part when Mohammed El Iran talks about specifically the supply chain issues. I want to focus now on the backups in the supply chain, the dozens of huge container ships that are parked outside the harbors in Los Angeles, uh, dozens of, of ships, also empty store shelves. How much of this, and we, you touched on it before, but how much of this is, is excess demand that there are people with money in their pockets who are trying to buy more, uh, and how much of it are backups, uh, blockades in the supply system when you've got uh, problems at, at ports, at warehouses, truckers and, tra- uh, the truckers and trains? I suspect it's one-third, one-third, one-third. One-third, lots of demand. All of us want to buy. And the more we worry about sh- shortages, the more we bring forward demand. Christmas is a perfect example. Tell people there won't be toys for Christmas, they'll start buying now. So they bring forward that demand. Another third is COVID related. You know, when your computer turns off and then comes back on, it doesn't come back on perfectly. It takes time for different things to start working again. You've got to sign in to your accounts again. You've got to open your email again. That's what's happening to the global economy. When it started functioning again, it didn't start simultaneously. And then you had Delta come in that shut down ports around the world. And then the third element is underinvestment. For a long time, we've underinvested in our port facilities, and that's now coming and biting us. So just a completely thorough answer that it's not just one simple thing to be mad at, but it's this kind of giant reckoning of our economy trying to kind of turn back on after everyone's been home for, you know, 18 months. And 
either has savings because they haven't been traveling, they're doing fixes in their home, like for whatever might, might be happening, demand is up and supply is down. And it's happening simultaneously. Yeah. And his example of it taking time to turn back on, I mean, it reminds me of uh, Jurassic Park, of course. Got to have a reference in there. Oh, my God. When they shut the system. I hope our listeners are also rolling their eyes with They shut the system down and then they turn it back on and they're like, Samuel L. Jackson's like, all right, look, it worked. And the amalgam's like, what do you mean it worked? Everything's still off. He's like, well, you know, you just got to, things are booting back up. Just got to go through some raptors. You got to go to the, you know, security, you know, the shed over there and flip everything back on. But what does he say? In um, 15 minutes, I can have power back on to the entire park. Fortunately, it's not that easy. Are you saying Mohammed Elrod is Samuel Jackson in this situation? No, no. He's he's saying it's going to take some time. Okay. So just... A really thorough answer, right? Moving on to inflation, I didn't include the whole exchange, but it's actually quite amusing hearing Mohammed al-Iran trying to calm the concerns or lower the temperature after Chris Wallace's, you know, 911 emergency situation about inflation. But when you say high class problems, I think a lot of people would push back and say, if it's costing me 40% more to fill up my tank of gas, if I want to get Christmas presents and I can't find them, that's not a high class problem. Yeah, that's not a high class problem, but there are elements that are high class. One, massive demand for labor. So wages are starting to go up and are starting to go up meaningfully. Second, the reason why there's so much inflation is partly due to a lot of demand. There's a lot of purchasing power in the economy. That's a good thing. It is the supply side, the everything shortage, if you like, that is the problem. And hopefully that can be addressed. But part of this inflation is good inflation. Inflation, part is bad inflation. It's like the good cholesterol versus the bad cholesterol. Everyone's like, what? What? Your good fats and bad fats. What? Come on, help us understand this. It's like, mm, was that the good part or the bad part when my gas is $40 to fill up? I mean, I think we all know that avocado is the good kind of fat and bacon fat is the bad kind of fat. I hope we all know that. I feel like a lot of people are now, I'm hearing, they're like, fat is not the issue. Okay. Everyone should listen to the maintenance phase because it's an excellent podcast that breaks down all the wellness bullshit. (laughs) Moving back to the interview on Fox News Sunday, Mohammed El-Iran also talks to Chris Wallace specifically about the Build Back Better proposal and whether or not it's, quote unquote, overheating the economy. Like it's like burnt toast or something. President Biden and congressional Democrats are talking right now, trying to negotiate $3 trillion plus, maybe even $4 trillion in more federal spending. Is that a good idea at a time when the economy is overheated? So when you say overheated, that's a demand side concept relative to supply. The issue is how do we get supply to respond? And that's where that package comes in. Physical infrastructure, something that everybody agrees on. The more we can improve our infrastructure, 
the higher our productivity, the more we can supply goods to the marketplace, and the more inflationary pressures come down. So I don't think there's much disagreement on that element of the package. Where there is disagreement is what's on called human infrastructure, and that is enhancing human productivity in order to bring more people into the labor force. We have a problem of labor shortages. Um, so I do think that if it's targeted well on the supply side, that can help with growth and that can help with inflation. But right now, the argument is all on the demand side, and that's why this thing is getting stuck. I'm just saying, if Mohammed Elrond taught economics at my university, I probably would have like shifted career paths 15 <laughs> years ago because he makes it just very like accessible and i think like i appreciate he's not doomsday about any of this it's like this is what's happening and this is what might influence or kind of trigger certain actions either on the demand side or the supply side and you know these are the levers that we have at our disposal and and i thought it was really interesting that he mentions that he kind of breaks down chris wallace's question saying like you're focusing on the demand side relative to to supply and then explains that we need to do, you know, there's only so much we can do on the supply side. And that thinking of the Build Back Better plan, the human infrastructure, actually helps us kind of address some of those labor shortages, right? And so kind of showing how things are connected to each other and like the levers that we have to kind of influence one side or the other. Yeah, this is this is really helpful. And I think that visual aids would probably be helpful, too, if we're talking about like a classroom setting for people to understand the supply versus the demand side and how that works and the curve that is produced by it and and all that. But but it is an important discussion of a topic that is often so politicized. And this question is often you know, given to partisan speakers on either one side or the other of the topic. Right. I, I, I think that's what it kind of, it felt like this was not a conversation to convince a politician to vote for one thing or the other or to be mad, mad at the Biden administration or what have you. It was to kind of felt very much like this is what's happening and this is what we need to understand and this is what we need to kind of not push or demand, but again, these are the levers that we have at our disposal to kind of influence the situation and just time and time again, making it a moment to kind of bring the average viewer along in understanding this problem as opposed to say, giving them the answer of like, this is why you should be mad. And it felt very different than other interviews or, or either, even other interviews that focus on the economy which I would say the, the panel was much more like Biden has it all wrong. He's losing points. He's losing, you know, just kind of making it all doomsday. And you're not really learning nearly as much. Yeah, totally. They're all like assessments rather than explanations. Right. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. So last clip from this interview from Mohammed El Iran. And this time he's talking about workers and how workers have are having a real moment here. Some 10,000 union workers at John Deere just went on strike, rejecting a wage increase of five to 6% this year. Some 4.3 million Americans quit their jobs in August in what's now being called the great resignation. How is all of that contributing to inflation and to supply chain problems? And when Republicans blame federal spending, uh, federal benefits, is that right, especially now that the enhanced unemployment benefits have expired? 
So what's clear is that the, the expiration of the benefits have not led to more people coming into the labor force. So that issue has been sorted out. What's not clear is what's keeping labor from coming in. And the more labor resists coming back into the labor force, the greater the bargaining power of people in the labor force. So should, we should expect more strikes going forward because workers now have greater bargaining power. Why is that happening? Part of it is the excess demand from people looking to hire quickly because demand has come back. But part of that, Chris, is changed behaviors. Um, we feel that now we can negotiate higher wages without losing our jobs. We feel that we can go from one job to another and get signed up bonuses. And some people don't want to come back into the labor force. They have changed their views about work-life balance. Brilliant answer here. So nuanced. So nuanced and really kind of helping us understand. I mean, childcare is not mentioned and the effect of school, which is a huge missing gap. But overall, helping us understand that, of course, workers are leveraging the power that they have. Like newsflash, they haven't had a lot in a really long time. And the and the supply chain and other issues are so dire that it just elevates their power. I just wanted to close out this kind of whole segment on the economy and specifically about workers from another point. This one was from Deidre Bolton. She's an ABC News business correspondent. And this was on this week. Martha Raddatz had kind of an economics roundtable with different correspondents from the ABC News team that covers the economy. I thought she also really explained this shift in power among workers. And and Deirdre, we've got these labor disputes with places like Kellogg, John Deere. Workers seem to be sensing they're in a pretty strong position. They are in a pretty strong position when what I find is interesting is that organized labor is at the lowest that it's ever been in the United States. But yet public sentiment is very much with these workers. And you just alluded to some of the companies. I mean, it's really across numerous industries. And I think there is this idea. There's one interesting stat. There are more than 700 billionaires in the U.S. with a collective net worth of $4.7 trillion. That is more than double what the lower 50% net worth of Americans is. So it just this idea of income inequality, I, I think public opinion is very much shifting towards the worker. It's, it's kind of what Diane says. I mean, economists in the government were amazing at counting the number of jobs. We are a ton less amazing at counting the quality of jobs. And that's what these workers are talking about. That's what a lot of people are feeling, even in professional and business services. Hey, my life changed a lot over the past two years. I don't know if I want to keep working like I was. So such an important point here that this is not zeroed in and narrowed in a specific industry. This is across the board, a change in worker sentiment and worker power. One thing on both of these shows, we haven't we didn't hear from today um, from organized labor. I haven't heard, seen organized labor on any of the shows yep. in many weeks. I think that's a huge gap, and I think it's really needed. But overall, I think there should be th- there's a lot of like politicians, you know, pr- especially progressive Democrats in the House who talk a lot about how workers feel. But you know, workers can speak for themselves. They're having this huge organizing moment. And I think hearing from them directly would go a long way. Yeah, it's due. Absolutely. And I thought this point and this admission from Bolton talking about, you know, economists can talk about the number of jobs, but we are a ton less amazing counting at the quality of jobs. I just want to underline that, like 
50 million times. And, you know, here in Southern California, there's a lot of talk about like increasing, you know, the efficiency or, you know, kind of all all ports are going to be 24-7. Long Beach is already one of the busiest ports in the country. And, you know, we, Brendan and I, live in the Inland Empire, which is the region directly east of L.A. County and Orange County. And a huge part of our economy here locally is logistics. And, you know, there's a lot of organizing. Like moving all those shipping containers. Right. Once they're on land, then they have to get into... onto a truck and then go to a warehouse and then get onto another truck or a train. Yeah. Along all those steps, worker conditions are not great. And so there's a bigger reckoning that I think needs to happen, trying to understand, appreciate, and also think about how some of these roles are going to be changing in the future and and what workers are going to demand. And so, you know, just like one tiny example is like, I think heating conditions like how hot workers can work in in the warehouses was regulated like i don't know five years ago here in california like it's just ridiculous well and in in the federal government it's just being discussed for the first time yeah heat as an issue right and so i just think there's so much to be learned and and to focus on and trying to think of the quality of work if we are expecting people to do this grueling work so we can get, you know, light bulbs in two days or whatever. So I learned a ton. I thought it was a very nuanced conversation. There's still, like I said, a lot of gaps, but it at least made me hopeful for better coverage moving forward. I hope so, at least. An excellent discussion on Fox News Sunday. And it is a perfect segue to what I want to be talking about. So as I mentioned earlier, my focus today is to do a little compare and contrasting here between Chuck Todd and Jake Tapper. And my sense of it was overall, I would say that Chuck Todd had a very fact and issue focused discussion with a lot of his guests. And that once again, Jake Tapper went down the path of feeling and emotion and outrage do you think our listeners think we hate feelings <laughs> maybe it's hey, not, listen, sometimes i do whatever not, i don't regret it <laughs> yeah it's just not always the most actionable right exactly although one could for example maybe jake tapper would argue lots of things happen as a re- result of emotional outrage in our political system it is perhaps very much outrage driven so why should we not be talking about it see that is the counterpoint But I'm going to make my point. And (laughs) let's begin with Chuck Todd's interview with Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of Transportation, and this series of excellent questions where Chuck Todd is really focused here on holding those in power accountable for fixing problems. And this is a problem we all recognize that you just brought to our attention. Martha Raddatz saw with her own two eyes all of those ships stacked up waiting to get into the country. Do you think there's a slight chance that Martha Raddatz texts like the top journalist be like, no worries, guys, this is real. I saw it myself. (laughs) XOXO, Martha. (laughs) Checks out. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, Chuck Todd has his, like, okay, then I got to talk about it. It's real. (laughs) Uh, I want to start, obviously, with this issue of the supply chain. Your Secretary of Transportation, the ports, all of this is uh, under your purview here. Uh, The big news you made was trying to establish a 24-7 operation now 
uh, at as many of our nation's ports as possible. Well, let me ask you, this supply chain issue has been a problem for months. Why wait till this week to try that? Why weren't we at a 24-7 operation nine months ago, 10 months ago, a year ago? I love this question. Oh, you just did something really good? Why didn't you do it earlier? It's been a problem for longer than this. I also felt like this <laughs> could be a question to the Sunday shows. Why are you talking about this now? Why are you talking about it after Biden brought it up? It wasn't really a featured topic. It was maybe mentioned on a panel here or there, but it really wasn't a featured topic until Biden and that administration went out and said, hey, we're going to do this fix at these ports. So road runs both ways here. But I do appreciate the question because it is an important one. And people to judge doesn't really have a great answer. His answer is, well, we were studying it for a while. Uh, and that takes a long time. You know, we really have to study it. And then uh, we had a little pilot program with Long Beach. And now we're going to roll it out. But it's like, hmm, did it really take you that long to realize like, huh, all these things are backed up. Maybe we could stay open longer. <laughs> It's like it's like a store, you know, with a line of guests out the door. And it's like, sorry, everyone, we close at three o'clock. It's like, hmm, looks like there's a lot of business and people waiting in line. Maybe we could stay open and let those people in and take care of their business. Yeah. Anyway, here's the next question about accountability. Well, let me ask you about various ideas that industry leaders are going to be asking the federal government for. Uh, I'm going to put up four ideas that uh, we have found uh, in our research. There's some that would like to see uh, deploying of the National Guard, maybe even use of the U.S. Navy at the ports themselves. A suspension of some of the tariffs uh, that right now have added to the cost of shipping. Fill some of these vacant jobs using some temporary visas with labor from overseas and possibly even tap some national defense funding. So let's unpack this. The National Guard. The state, of, uh, the state of Massachusetts is using the National Guard to fill a gap of school bus drivers, right? Is there any reason why you wouldn't use the National Guard to try to get more truck drivers on the road? I love this. Approaching them with, like, solutions, other ideas beyond staying open later that could solve the problem. And then Chuck Todd proceeds to go through one after the next after the next. Here's another example of that. Right. One other thing that the government can do is tariff relief. Uh, is it on the table? Again, I think that any opportunity to make a difference will be looked at. But let's also remember that the president's overall policy of Buy America, his constantly pushing uh, for us to make and source more goods uh, in America would be a, a big part of the solution on a lot of these issues. All right. Uh, if we didn't need to go overseas for so many of our products, uh, we would have a lot more resilience in our supply chain when there is, you know, uh, a, anything from a typhoon to a COVID outbreak shutting down a factory overseas. And so it's one more reason why the president is rightly calling on America and working for America uh, to build up more of that domestic manufacturing and other supply capacity. Again, a very good question about a real possibility that could reduce the cost of goods coming in and maybe reduce those pressures of inflation that people are feeling right now as a result of those tariffs that are meaning that people have to pay more for goods that are coming from China. Of course, Pete Buttigieg gets into the whole argument of, well, this is why we have the tariffs to get people to buy more American. But of course, if there isn't something to buy here, or if it's more expensive to buy from here, that's not really reducing those costs for people. I always, you know, when I think of tariffs, I always think of Scott Lincecum 
He is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a lecturer at Duke University, and <laughs> he has this whole thing where he he had this quote about tariffs and he just wishes people would from both sides of the party would understand like the issues of tariffs and their destructive nature on the economy. And he said, someone needs to put that on a t-shirt. And so someone did. And he's got this t-shirt and it's like the most non tagline thing you could ever think of. It's like the worst bumper sticker ever. I'm just going to read it here. Tariffs not only impose immense economic costs, but also fail to achieve their primary policy aims and foster political dysfunction along the way. Didn't become a bestseller, I'm guessing. No, but you can buy it right now on Redbubble, I'm seeing. Uh, you can buy it for $21.55. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> okay, so that was Chuck Todd, and there was more to it, and... I would encourage people to take a listen to hear Pete Buttigieg's answers, some good, some not so good, all very interesting in that conversation. But let's shift over now to Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper also interviewed Secretary Buttigieg, and he asked a very good question here on tariffs as well. He brought the issue up, and not only did he bring it up, he did a better job than Chuck Todd actually explaining it for the audience to understand why reducing tariffs might actually be a possible solution. Many American companies, especially small businesses, as you know, are struggling to cope with these supply chain disruptions. One possible solution, uh, President Biden lifting former President Trump's tariffs on China to try to pro provide some relief. That's not a, a, a panacea, but it could provide some relief Will President Biden do that? Will he lift those tariffs? Well, I think every idea is being taken seriously, but what we're doing right now is to focus on the operations themselves. Uh, a lot of Americans might be surprised to learn that our ports have not generally operated on a 24-7 basis. We've secured commitments to change that, and the president announced that the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, uh, Long Beach actually was piloting this for, for a few weeks. Collectively, those two ports are 40% of our uh, container traffic. They're now going 24-7. That's not a simple thing to do overnight, uh, but it was a big commitment. So what's happened here? It's kind of interesting, like Tapper did a better job asking the question, but the answer is not as good. And why do you think that is? Like, I mean, my initial gut reaction is that Pete Buttigieg has lower expectations for a conversation with Jake Tapper. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, that could be one thing. I mean, one thing that stood out to me was Tapper did a good job initially asking about one alternative, but because... Tapper didn't already set up a robust conversation on this topic. Buttigieg is able to parry and say, uh, don't ask about that. Look at what we're doing over here. We're, we're staying open later. So, yeah, you might have brought up that the goods are more expensive, but uh, l let's not talk about that. Did you see that our store is open till five now? I know everything's more expensive, but did you see that we're open later? It's like, yeah, but that's not what the question was, you know? And you're not actually addressing the question at all by saying that the ports are open longer. But Buttigieg doesn't end there. The clip ends there. But Buttigieg went on in his answer and brought up, you know, the reason that we need this infrastructure bill. And then Tapper's like, ooh, infrastructure, let's talk about political fight. Let's talk about frustrations. Let's talk about feelings. Well, Secretary Buttigieg, that $17 billion for ports and the infrastructure bill, I mean, that passed the Senate more than two months ago. Um, it's sitting in the House and House progressives are not going to vote for it unless they first get a vote, a successful vote, on the larger social safety net uh, bill. Are you frustrated by that delay? Do you think that was a mistake 
for progressives to demand this other legislation be voted on before the infrastructure bill? Well, the reality needs uh, the reality is that America needs both of those pieces of legislation, uh, not only to uh, make sure that we have the right kind of infrastructure, but to make sure that life gets better in this country for people trying to raise children. Right, but only one uh, of the bills is ready now. To participate in the workforce. I couldn't believe it when I heard this question because Tapper is asking, "Are you frustrated by the delay of the House progressives fighting for the Biden agenda? The progressives established." And Biden, like, has acquiesced to their demands because the progressives are fighting for the Biden agenda. They're fighting to keep the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better agenda connected so that Build Back Better agenda actually happens. And, like, the the Biden administration has wholly agreed with this. They are 100% on board with this political strategy. And yet Tapper is asking a member of that administration if they're frustrated by what that administration is doing. Like, I can't even, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like saying, it's like asking the vice president, are you, Vice President Harris, are you frustrated by Biden's choice in doing this? She would never say that. Buttigieg will never say that he is frustrated by the delay that the administration has blessed. Like, it makes zero sense whatsoever to ask this question. It just is completely meaningless, except to the extent of giving Tapper an opportunity to say that it's frustrating, because that's what Tapper goes on to do. You heard him interrupting there by saying, well, but only one of the bills is ready now, so aren't you frustrated? Isn't this frustrating? No, you're inserting that frustration. Right, you are claiming it's frustration. You are claiming it's frustrating. Buttigieg isn't claiming that at all. He's not bringing it up. He's never going to agree with you that it's frustrating. Because it's their policy. It's completely irrelevant beyond Tapper's own feelings. Well, I mean, it's one thing. I think it's valid to criticize political strategy. I think that's fair. What doesn't make sense to me is that it's not like this isn't, like you mentioned, literally Biden's plan. (laughs) Right? Right. So it'd be one thing if, for instance... You know, I'm thinking of the Trump administration when the Trump administration wanted to do something and the Senate didn't want to move on it or they didn't agree or asking somebody in Republican leadership, like, what are you going to do? How do you respond? Like, how do you negotiate with something that is not in line with what you want to do? That's very different than, like you mentioned, criticizing a strategy of the administration by someone in the administration and assuming something, assuming a different answer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if Tapper wanted to bring this up, he needed a much better question, right? The question could have been, okay, Secretary Buttigieg, you're saying that the money in that infrastructure bill is so important. Well, that bill is ready to pass, but the Biden administration has endorsed a plan to delay passage of that bill. At what point? Is it appropriate for you to give up on the other bill and just say, we need to pass this infrastructure bill? Or at what point do we need to hold the Biden administration accountable for not getting that money out to help us with our infrastructure? That's an important question. Okay, so the final two examples, I want to contrast strategies by Chuck Todd in his interview with Asa Hutchinson, the Republican governor from Arkansas, with Jake Tapper's Pretty long interview, but definitely very interesting with Jon Stewart 
on State of the Union. So in the interview on Meet the Press with Asa Hutchinson, Chuck Todd discusses the topic of mandates, discusses the topic of Republican legislatures around the country pushing back on those mandates, and what that means for the Republican Party. So he begins the interview with some great facts about how mandates have increased the uptake of the vaccines across the country. But as he goes deeper and deeper and discusses the specific example taking place in Arkansas with Governor Hutchinson, he gets to a point where he makes an observation. And I think this observation is insightful and opens up a wider discussion and could essentially be a topic for an entire episode. And the conversation has been shaped by the fact that the legislature in Arkansas, the Republican legislature, has put restrictions on companies and their ability to put in mandates for the COVID vaccine. Republican governments have said, no, companies are not allowed to put mandates in place where their employees must get the vaccine. And Chuck Todd makes this observation. You know, there is a lack of consistency now in in your party, not with you uh, on on this issue, but this sort of government intervention with the private sector. Republican state legislatures all across the country have gotten really aggressive at trying to insert government either into into over overreach on local government decisions or on private sector decisions. Uh, Are you concerned about the direction of your party, that there is this sense of Um, It's not a small government party anymore. It's a my government, my way party, if you will, at least on these in these state legislatures. Well, it's an important debate on liberty. And uh, my view has always been, which I believe is consistent with the principles of our party, that let's stay out of interfering with those private business decisions. These are not all large employers. They can be a small employer that wants to protect their business and their employees and their customers. They ought to have those decisions. To me, if you're going to say the government ought to come in and tell the employers what to do, the next thing is they could say we shouldn't have uh, drug-free workplaces where you can't require drug testing in the workplace by employers. I think that's wrong. I'm former head of the DEA, and I believe employers ought to be able to make that decision. And if somebody doesn't comply and it's a sensitive workplace, they lose their job. Uh, We require that uh, in in many different uh, sensitive businesses across uh, the country. So, yes, I think when you're talking about Mm -hmm. a restraint on government, let's be consistent. So I really appreciated this, Chuck Todd pausing in this conversation to just make an observation that, like, One of our major, two major parties has decided to very much change their small government philosophy on this issue and a number of other issues. And it should be noted and it should be discussed. And here he is confronting a major politician in that party with that issue. And the thing I would also note is that this is actually a really solid answer by Governor Hutchinson explaining why... Employers of any size should be able to make calls for their employees and customers that seems fit. Right. And I really also appreciate what Hutchinson says is the next step from here is you're saying, well, we shouldn't have a drug free workplace. Right. He's saying, you know, if you follow the logic down the road beyond whatever the latest political outrage is that these Republican legislatures are reacting to, then you get to a place where it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's the same 
topic that Margaret Brennan got to with Jim Justice, Republican governor of West Virginia, where she was bringing up the fact that schools mandate vaccines for kids all the time. Why would COVID not be a possible mandate, especially during a pandemic? In fact, even though he tried to say, well, that's a different issue or, you know, I'm never going to change my mind on COVID issues, whatever. Republicans can say that all they want, but it has and is eroding the public's belief in the importance of mandating vaccines for kids at school, which is a very basic public health thing that everyone agreed with before this pandemic. And now because Republicans have weaponized this topic and they're trying to score points on it left and right, they are eroding other features of public health. Just as Hutchinson is pointing out that, well, if Republicans keep going down this road, suddenly businesses won't have the power to make sure that their workers are drug free. Very good answer. Now, let's look at the other side of that. On State of the Union, Jake Tapper, here's an observation that he made something that occurred to him, an issue he wanted to bring up with his guest. Now, his guest is Jon Stewart. Jon Stewart, as we know, incredibly influential political commentator, satirist, who has been off the air for something like seven years, now is back on the air promoting his show and was invited on to State of the Union. Now, I was quite skeptical at this conversation. Jon Stewart has his own platform. He doesn't likely need the platform of State of the Union. But... He definitely had some interesting observations, and in the same way that occasionally John Dickerson would have historians on to talk about their books, I'm going to allow John Stewart being on State of the Union once every seven years. How very kind of you. <laughs> Here's something Tapper brought up and thought was important in that conversation. There's a big debate going on right now in the Democratic Party about how to appeal to voters in 2022. There are a lot of social issues getting a lot of attention. Governor Gavin Newsom in California just signed a law uh, requiring gender-neutral toy sections in stores. Um, there's obviously a lot of debate across the country, not all, not all, all of it well-informed, uh, about critical race theory and how race is taught in schools. What are your, what, what, do you have concerns about how these debates are taking place? Obviously, I'm not talking about how they're depicted in, in right-wing media because they're, it doesn't matter what the Democrats do or liberals do for right-wing media to lie about it. But there are a number of independent voters who might not understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of things a lot of people don't understand. So that's Tapper's question. A little bit of Stewart's initial answer there. But later in the interview... John Stewart brings up the issue again, and I think he does the best job, better job than I would, at explaining why making those types of observations the focus of your show is not the best way to serve your audience. And so everybody wants to talk about, like that question you said about gender neutral, I can't remember what you said, gender neutral Sections and toys, toy stores. It's a, it's a law that the governor just passed in, and signed into right. law. But honestly, like that law, like... Who gives a shit? Like it's, do you know what I mean? Like in terms of the importance of the running of California, yeah, it's a law. Who's it really going to impact? It reminds me of, you know, somebody said to me that they were upset the other day that it had, things had gotten so out of hand. Oh, Demi Lovato wanted to be referred to as they. That was the pronoun that Demi Lovato wanted to use. And, and this person went, 
uh, you know, this is just, it's out of hand. And I said, well, I've, I've got really good news for you then. You don't know Demi Lovato. <laughs> so you're never going to have to really be in this situation. And whatever pronoun you use in conversation, she will be fine because you don't know Demi Lovato. And if you ever did meet Demi Lovato and you use the wrong pronoun, I'm sure Demi Lovato would be like, oh, oh I'm sorry, I prefer this one. And, and it, then it would be good done. But in the media, that story is ubiquitous. And it's, I think the media does a terrible job at de-escalation. Yeah. And, and de-escalation is the antidote to all this nonsense. And I don't mean civility and I don't mean nonpartisanship. I mean, focusing on things that are more urgent and elemental in people's lives and really hammering away at those things yeah, rather than purely the emotional fault lines that occur in societies. I love it that this is like as polite and clean as Jon Stewart could be on like <laughs> how stupid the media can be on what they choose to focus on. Yeah. I will say that California is the fifth largest economy in the world. And so things that happen in California, I think, do play a large role. But I do agree with Jon Stewart's assessment of things that are elemental, that has, you know, immediate large impacts or could influence something in, you know, a huge way. If you're going to focus on state policy at a national level, maybe focus on that. Right. Yeah. Focusing on urgent issues rather than, as Stewart put it, the emotional fault lines that occur in societies. Do you think Jake Dapper is an emotional fault line? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. That's quite a definition. I'm quite proud of it. But I really, I do want to underscore another phrase that Stuart had that I really liked, which is that, that de-escalation is the antidote to, to a lot of this. And Tapper just throwing this ball in there. And, and I had multiple other instances that I cut because we're running long here of Tapper just literally at some point he plays to Buttigieg a clip of Tucker Carlson making fun of his parental leave. And Tapper's question is, what's your reaction to that? Right? Like he's literally throwing a grenade into the conversation. The emotional grenade. Yeah, into the form of Tucker Carlson. And it does get a rise out of Pete Buttigieg. And Buttigieg, you know, provides an answer or whatever. But it's like, who is that serving, right? Who is that serving? That is not de-escalation. That is the opposite of de-escalation. The exact opposite. So good for Jon Stewart for putting his highlighter on the issue. So that's it for Polylog this week and every week. We encourage you to make your dialogue count as long as there are no emotions in it. We I don't mean, allow emotions uh, here on Polylog. You know, I think this is a good, <laughs> I think everyone has emotional fault lines on something, right? And I think it'd be an interesting dialogue challenge to think of like, what are your own emotional fault lines? Like, what are the conversations that are hard for you to talk about? I know mine. Immigration is one of them for sure. Zero chill. Uh, and it's just one of many, I guess I would say for me. But sometimes people don't even realize it. Yeah, very true. And also recognize when people are trying to throw a grenade, right. an emotional grenade at you just to get a rise out of you. or to- do Are you capable of like seeing it and ignoring it or diverting it or just like pushing it back? Yeah. Know? Can you be Jon Stewart and just say, no. I don't give a shit? Or... 
it's not that I don't give a shit. It, I don't think it's that. It's what is the point of that conversation? Right. What is the point of that inquiry? Right. Right. It, it's very different than just straight up apathy. No, that's true. Well, if you want to share your emotional fault lines with us, I promise we won't just swat them away. <laughs> so you can email them at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can follow me at Beastidle and you can follow the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.